When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash sacred text. Chapter 35, King's Cross. He lay face down, listening to the silence. He was perfectly alone. Nobody was watching. Nobody else was there. He was not perfectly sure, but he was there himself. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Casper Turkile. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. So Casper, today we're going to be discussing the theme of trust. What story do you have for us? Well, just over eight years ago, I met Sean, who is now my husband, as you know. And we had met online through OkCupid, and he had a very cute picture. (laughs) And so I messaged him, and I was like, hi, you look really handsome. And he had mentioned that he liked opera, so I sent him this, like, YouTube video of an aria that I loved from the one opera that I knew, (laughs) trying to impress him. And we had our first date, and it was very sweet, and it stood out to me because In the other dates that I'd been going on, you know, you're always like trying to make conversation. And with Sean, I felt very comfortable being quiet for some of the date. And that that really struck me as different from the other dates. And so we had a second date and a third date. And on our third date, he had cooked for me this delicious mushroom risotto. And there were real cloth napkins. I was like, this guy's clearly the one for me. And so I said, I don't really want to see anyone else like essentially like, shall we be together? And luckily he said, yes. 
And when I look back at our relationship, there's just a, a growing number of moments, right? The first time I told him that I loved him, the time that Boston was so blanketed in snow, there was no transport at all. And I walked for two and a half hours all the way from Cambridge, where I lived, to Jamaica Plain, where he lived. And I'm like, why would I do that? <laughs> but I did because I was I was just besotted with him. You know, the first time I met his parents, the first time he met my parents, the first time I cried in front of him, you know, when we needed each other's support. And I look at all of those moments trying to find a single moment when I was like, oh, I trust you, right? Like it was an on off switch and I, I couldn't find it. I don't think it exists because I think trust isn't something that, you know, you turn a corner and suddenly you're there. It's this slow, intentional process of weaving something together that it accumulates over time. And, and you just don't know when it happened. Even now, when I look back, I can't point to an exact moment. So I think about trust as this, it's like a plant that grows. Like you might see a bud and then later you see a much bigger stalk and then later you see a blossom, but you can't quite say when the plant was there or wasn't really. It's this always changing, always growing process. And I also think that we see that right with Dumbledore and Harry, mm -hmm. that they weave in and out of trust. I would argue in this chapter, Harry trusts Dumbledore too much. I think that he has betrayed the trust too many times for Harry to be so trusting. But I think your metaphor of a plant really works, right? And maybe it's a question of Dumbledore and Harry actually had some good roots. So it doesn't matter that some leaves had died over the years. Mm. I don't know. We'll see if I come to the conclusion at the end of this chapter that this plant is dead and best turned into compost for a healthy relationship somewhere else. That's what I was going to say. I was like, maybe it's more like a pressed flower of something that used to be true and now is just like beautiful, but not alive. <laughs> dead. <laughs> but beautiful. <laughs> well, let's remind everyone what actually happens in this chapter. A whole lot of nothing. <laughs> Except naked Harry. I was really struck by that. We're going to talk about that for sure. Okay, count me in. All right, here we go. Three. Two, one, recap. Harry is naked and they're silent and he doesn't have glasses, but he has eyes. And then Dumbledore is there in midnight blue and they sit on a bench and Dumbledore tells Harry about Horcruxes and Grindelwald and grief and power and other things. And then Harry is like, am I dead? And Dumbledore's like, no, you should go back. You don't have to, but a lot of people will suffer if you don't. And so Harry goes back. I'm really getting a strong vibe that you adore this chapter. <laughs> <laughs> it's not about the chapter. It's my frustration with Dumbledore. Mm. I mm. found him really, really difficult in this chapter, mm. which we'll talk more about. Okay. Are you ready to probably give a, a nicer <laughs> 30 second recap than I did. I'll try. Okay. On your mark, get set, go. Harry wakes up and he's not feeling any pain. He's lying on something white and he's like, where is this place? And as he looks around, the mist starts to form into shape and he's like, oh my gosh, maybe it's King's Cross Station. And then he sees this like horrible creature baby thing that's making sounds and like pounding the floor as if it's doing a drag race lip sync for your life. And then he notices a voice behind him that says like, you can't help. And it's Dumbledore and they have a lot big chat about all the things. And then um, Dumbledore's like, where are we? And Harry's like, oh, we're in King's Cross. And he's like, oh, how interesting. If you get on the train, you would go on. So Casper, should we start at the beginning where, I mean, like Harry is naked like a newborn babe? 
I honestly have so many questions, like theological questions about this moment when Harry wakes up, because is this the real world? No. Is this Harry's imagination? Maybe. Is this some sort of like spiritual plane where new things are true that weren't true before? Perhaps. And the reason why I find it so troubling is that there's a sense that Harry's body is in its natural state and not just natural, but in a perfected state. No longer does he have wounds. No longer does he have the scar. No longer does he need glasses. And of course, he's not wearing any clothes. Although when he wants clothes, they magically appear and he puts them on. The thing that I find really troubling is that it suggests, if I'm reading it critically, that in this magical, spiritual, perfect world, no one has any like any disabilities or different abilities, that that's somehow not a perfect body. So that sets me really off. Then later, we meet Dumbledore, who is wearing glasses and clothes without having wished them, or at least we haven't seen it. Like, what is this place and how does it work? And should we trust it? First of all, I just I agree with all of your frustrations. I find this place very strange. I can offer you a couple of theories of readings which is that we're getting like a very abbreviated form of the Garden of Eden where Mm. like for a moment he's perfect and naked and then he feels shame and puts on clothes. And so it's this moment of of something perfect and beautiful, but the fall comes very, very quickly. And that if Dumbledore is conjured by Harry, he's going to look the way Harry remembers him. Mm. And so it's how Harry remembered seeing Dumbledore. It's not about Dumbledore's ability to see without glasses, but it's about how Harry remembers Dumbledore. Yeah, that does make sense to me. Even though, you know, we know that Dumbledore's hand, of course, was injured when he died, Harry does imagine him with his hand whole and white and undamaged. Like all of this language is so troubling to me. It's very ableist, it's right? Very it's ableist. very ableist language. And yeah. I take your point that it might be Harry's imagination, right? His image of Dumbledore. But nonetheless, this line of perfection and I nearly want to say supremacy. Like, I don't know, this ableist supremacy feels very, very uncomfortable for me. Yeah. And, you know, I think we see that theory of supremacy in another moment. We find out that Harry has the invisibility cloak because he's descendant of the Peveril brothers. And it's so strange to me that we've spent these whole books being like, it doesn't matter if you're a pureblood. It doesn't matter if you're a pureblood. And yet the one who could be the master of the Hallows is descendant of the Peveril brothers. And I was like, okay, well, that means that blood does matter. Mm. And I understand that we do live in a world, and we've talked about this before, where both of those things are true. Your found family really matters and you can expunge a lot from your biological family, Mm. but your eye color and like your predisposition for cancer and all sorts of things, right? We can't entirely separate ourselves from our biological families. And those seem like live questions of trust to me, right? Mm. Like, do I trust the stories of my biological family or do I trust what other people have told me? Do I trust how much can I resist where I've come from and how much should I accept where I've come from, right? These do feel like live questions to me. I'm just not sure I like where the text lands on these questions. That's really helpful, Vanessa, because 
maybe I find a little bit of evidence that the text gives some space for that, which is in this mist, because everything is forming out of a, a sort of primordial mist for Harry, right? The place that he's in, the people that arrive, and perhaps the mist is that space in which Harry can question, can I trust this vision? If I'm making this happen, can I trust my mind's creation of what I'm engaging? And the the thing that feels the most trickiest is that it keeps being Dumbledore who insists, yes, you can trust this, or no, you can't help that little creature that ends up being Voldemort's soul, right? Dumbledore is the one who keeps putting boundaries on what is trustworthy and what isn't, or what can be changed and what can't. And so maybe if I'm a generous reader, I can think, okay, that Dumbledore is Harry's imagination to some extent. So there actually might have been space if Harry had engaged with this whole experience differently for some of these very problematic images and storylines to be different. And it's really hard for us to break the cycles of what we are taught, right? And so, of course, 17-year-old Harry goes to this heaven liminal space and is like, oh, I don't need glasses. I think that we're trained with an ableist mindset. So again, if we're in Harry's mind, I think that there is this understanding that like some sort of purity would be this ableist ideal of what a body's quote unquote supposed to be. Yeah. But I love that you're pointing to us trusting Dumbledore because the thorny part of this chapter to me, the part that I like scream against is that baby that is there left in a train station, like abandoned in a way station. And Dumbledore keeps saying we can't help. Yeah. And Harry, bless him, is scared to help it, but keeps wanting to. I think like three times. Yeah. And I just don't understand in what world we should trust Dumbledore about taking care of a baby. Like, mm. why aren't we picking up this baby? Who cares whether or not you can help it? You pick it up. You hold babies even if you can't help them. The only compelling reason that I could be given to not pick up the baby is it'll harm you, Harry, right? Like, it's a trick. But it's not. It's just he can't be helped. He can't be helped. A, we have no reason to trust Dumbledore that that's true. Mm. He does not have a great track record for how to care for people. And two, I just like, who cares? Pick up the baby. If I could be a crowd of people cheering and like jumping up and down, shouting hooray, I would be. Because this has always been the scene that has broken my heart because it's basically suggesting, if we read it at face value, that some people are unworthy of love or that that they are beyond care or that they are, you know, to use a very theological framing, like unsavable, that forever damned. And I am unwilling to engage that theology. I, I just think it's so toxic. It's how people get excluded and marginalized and oppressed. And I just love what you're saying, that the person who's giving us the information, which I have always read at face value, is an untrustworthy voice. That Harry's instinct of caring is so trustworthy, right? Even when it's led him into traps, it's still the right thing to do, that that's the thing that's worth trusting. Because listen to the description, a form of a small naked child. Its skin was raw and rough and flayed looking. It had been left unwanted, stuffed out of sight, struggling for breath. What has this book taught us? It's that bodies like that, children like that who were abandoned and unloved, 
who are left under staircases or in orphanages, that that those are desperately in need and deserving of love. So I, I just so appreciate what you're saying. And it's so funny because Dumbledore in this chapter keeps saying to Harry, you are more worthy of the Hallows than I. You are more trustworthy than I. You are more loving than I. Don't touch the baby. Right. And I'm like... Harry, don't listen to him. <laughs> like, go touch the baby. I'm like about to cry. I yeah. can't tell you how disturbing I find this chapter, that there is a crying baby that's been abandoned under a bench, and then we see the two quote-unquote heroes of the chapter ignore it and continuously shut themselves off to it. This, I think, has been the hardest chapter to treat as sacred. Mm. And I think that our sacred reading, our conversation can, like, make it something beautiful and complicated. But this chapter is just, it is, like, hateful to me. And Dumbledore, like, again, why do we trust him? He's sending Harry back as a lamb to the slaughter a second time. Mm. We have just had this model of Sirius Lupin and Harry's parents being like, you're so brave. We love you so much. And like, we are not going to send you anywhere. And Dumbledore being so manipulative, being like, Mm. you could get on a train to a place where you don't need glasses and like don't need clothes and things magically appear. But a lot of people will suffer and die. It's like, Jesus, I just Dumbledore becomes like unforgivable to me in this chapter. Dumbledore is really striking because you know what I'm going to do. I'm going to point to a place where our theme word shows up in the actual text. One of the things he asks Harry after talking about the Deathly Hallows, he says, can you forgive me for not trusting you? Right. Because he told Harry about the Horcruxes, but he didn't tell him about the Hallows. And so if we were to read him as (laughs) as that kind of manipulative figure, it's a way in which he rebuilds trust in order to use it to get Harry to go back. In a more generous reading, Again, if this is a Dumbledore of Harry's imagination, the way I might read it is to think of Dumbledore as embodying one of the voices in Harry's head. That he has a voice that says, let's just get on the train. Let's leave this behind. And that another part of Harry is saying like, no, I I want to go back. I can help. That's part of him as well. And that helps me read it slightly differently. Yeah. And I think that the text a little bit wants us to have it both ways on that because There are moments where I want to read it like that, where I'm like, okay, this is Harry's projection of what Dumbledore would say to him. Mm. And Harry at some level knows Dumbledore well enough or thinks he knows Dumbledore well enough to project this on to a a dream Dumbledore. However, I would like to think that dream Dumbledore wouldn't make it all about Dumbledore. And (laughs) the reason that Dumbledore is so untrustworthy to me in this chapter is that Harry has just sacrificed himself. Harry has just attempted to save the world. And Dumbledore is like, hey, let me tell you about my sad story. Mm. If it was Harry's projection, would Harry really be like, why did Dumbledore never become Minister of Magic? I really need that question answered. But there's exactly the thing that I think is caretaking. Harry, in this moment, I don't think he's looking for platitudes. I don't think he's he's looking for celebration. I think what he's looking for is answers. This chapter is about, I need to understand why these things happened. How did I end up in this situation? Why didn't it work with the ones, right? Like Harry is piecing together a story of his own life 
with the information that Dumbledore is sharing. And so, again, if I'm reading generously, I, I guess I'm thinking of that information sharing as caregiving because it's helping Harry make meaning and make sense of his own experience. And, you know, we'll talk about this much more in the in the epilogue. But to some extent, I think this information helps Harry close a chapter and at least try to live a normal life. And I can't imagine if he didn't have this information, he would spend another, you know, seven years going out to look for answers that that he's able to find or perhaps make up, <laughs> right? Depending how we read the whole scene in this kind of fictional conversation with Dumbledore. And, and I, I do see something important in that. So I agree. And I think that there are moments where the chapter really wants us to see this as a projection of Harry imagining Dumbledore because Dumbledore says to Harry, you already know this. Mm. You already know this. You don't need me to tell you this. We get retold the story of Ariana, which Harry already knows. But then there are moments of new information. Like Dumbledore says, I got offered to be Minister of Magic twice and I rejected it both times. And then it's like, no, this Dumbledore is real and sharing Harry's information. And the fact that it's both, to me, just makes this whole chapter really untrustworthy and this vision of Dumbledore really untrustworthy. It feels like nothing but manipulation because it's trying to be both. Well, I, I think there's one more place just to point to, which is there's a second place where we see the word trust. And it, it's again with Dumbledore, but in a different context this time. He says, I had learned that I was not to be trusted with power. And this is about him refusing that role of, of the Minister of Magic. And it was interesting to me because it he is drawing a distinction between himself and Harry, right? That Harry is worthy of power, essentially, because ultimately he doesn't want it. Versus Dumbledore, who is unworthy of power because he does want it. The text tells us that he was looking for glory in his younger years, right? That, that he was really wrapped up in Grindelwald's and his own vision of kind of wizarding supremacy. And it reminded me of that very famous quote that power corrupts, but absolute power corrupts absolutely, which feels very true. And for me, maybe even allows us to make a distinction between Dumbledore as someone who had absolute power in, in this kind of solo way. And that Harry was always embedded with Ron and Hermione, that he didn't end up in a situation where he would have absolute power. Even the kind of the journey of chasing Horcruxes or Hallows Dumbledore points to the fact that he left perhaps enough clues that Hermione would figure it out. I, I don't know if we can exactly believe Dumbledore's strategy, but at least I like the distinction between Dumbledore as a solo power holder and Harry as someone who has shared power with Hermione and Ron and that 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 makes him more trustworthy. Yeah, and it certainly says that we can trust people who surround themselves well versus people who surround themselves poorly, right? Mm. Dumbledore is like, you can't trust me. I surround myself with Grindelwald, whereas Harry surrounds himself with this like very loving boy and Ron Weasley, the smartest witch of her age, you know, Hermione Granger. And so and I do think like talking about falling in love with our partners, I think part of the process of my falling in love with Peter was meeting his friends and being like, oh, he loves really wonderful people. And like that makes me trust him more. And so I do think that we can learn that Dumbledore has some very strange instincts and who to bring into his life. Although that is the one moment in the chapter where I really felt for Dumbledore, if it's mm. real Dumbledore, when he says, I resented having to take care of my sister. Yeah. I wanted to be out in the world and do things, you know, and so I justified that I could use the cloak to hide Ariana and just go and 
And I resented that Aberforth told me that that wasn't possible, right? Like, mm-hmm. and Dumbledore even says, I loved my brother and sister so much, but I also wanted to go. And I feel that so strongly, right? Like, I didn't want to miss a minute with my grandfather, and yet I kept leaving. And I, like, don't want to miss a minute with my nephew and niece, except that I, I also don't want to move back to L.A., right? And so that ambition and love for your family and resentment of your family— I really felt for Dumbledore. Yeah, I mean, that there's something in his retelling that really struck me, which is that Dumbledore cries when he's sharing that story. And that might just be that that feeling is still so strong, right? That conflict that, that you're pointing us to. The other thing that it maybe might suggest is that he hasn't trusted many people with this story. It's a wound, not a scar, as we like to say. And that illustrated again for me the, the kind of isolation that Dumbledore has been in or has put himself in to some extent because he, ha- he hasn't shared this story freely. I mean, and the lesson I took from it is slightly different, which is that Dumbledore regrets not just staying and taking care of Ariana. Mm. I took his tears to be tears of regret that he should have just given in to the the life that he had. Hmm. And then he says this horrible thing where he calls his brother unlettered and I hate him again. <laughs> Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. So Casper, I see another moment of trust, which is that Voldemort really trusts this bond with him and Harry. And it ends up being his undoing. And it's his trust of the prophecy. And I think it's his trust that he is grand enough to be part of a prophecy, (laughs) right? Like, 
And I do love the way that Dumbledore describes it, right? It's his blind belief that he and Harry have some score to settle that makes him do this very cruel thing in book four of killing Cedric and drawing Harry's blood that ends up saving Harry. If Voldemort had rebuilt his body with anyone else's blood, which it seems like he very much magically could have, Harry would be dead right now. And it was only his obsession and cruelty that saved Harry, which that I love. I love that idea. There's something really cool in here. I want to build on that because one of the things that I remembered was that all of Voldemort's efforts are about his lack of trust in muggles. And what you're pointing to is his overtrust in magic or, or this kind of this specialness of magic or the power of a, a certain kind of magic. And it, it really draws this distinction of like, well, you put your trust so much in this one thing that you missed all of these other things that actually are also worthy of trust. It's an imbalance of trust nearly. Um, the way that immediately strikes me to read that for our lives is write different sources that you might want to trust rather than just relying on one single news outlet, for example, right? A, a good media diet includes multiple sources, or it might be, you know, whether you're just trusting one person who's told you something or numerous witnesses. So th it seems to have some parallels, but I wonder if there's more. I mean, where I see it also in our own lives is just the like real downside of obsession, mm. right? Like the person who we are constantly comparing ourselves to, the people who we let haunt us, mm. we should let them go because they become a part of us. When someone is haunting us, I think what we're trying to do is separate ourselves from them. When we're comparing ourselves to them, we're like, they are successful in this way and I need to try to be more successful. But really, you're not separating yourself from them. You are allowing them into you. You are allowing them like all of this mental space. Yes. And so I think if we're going to learn a lesson from Voldemort, it's you got to let those things go because you're carrying them with you and that is going to kill you, right? You kill your identity. I love that, Vanessa. And I think we see exactly the same for Dumbledore, right? He's haunted by Grindelwald until the very end. And what Harry is doing, what that's so beautiful is he's like, I'm not going to let this haunt me. I'm letting it go and stepping into it, what we hope is a new chapter for him. So Casper, I'm wondering if you believe this thing that Harry projects Dumbledore is saying, which is that Harry is the master of the Hallows. And I'm wondering if you think that's true. If we can trust Harry as the master of death? And if so, why? You know, it ends up being true in the text that he is trustworthy with it. He drops the resurrection stone and we are not led to believe he goes back and looks for it. He breaks the hallows, this like hundreds year old tradition. So we know that he can be trusted with them. But I'm wondering why? Like, why is Harry Potter... This boy who we are taught is not special in any way other than the fact that Voldemort became obsessed with him, right? We believe that any other boy whose mother would have gotten in front of him could have beaten this curse. And it's Voldemort's obsession that makes Harry special. That gets confirmed in this chapter. So what is it about Harry Potter that makes him the person who can end this horrible magic of the Hallows? The thing that really stands out to me is that from the beginning of Harry's kind of tenure with the cloak, right from the very beginning, he is sharing access to it. I mean, he's not advertising it freely and putting it up for rent by the hour, but like 
Ron uses it. Like other people end up being protected by it. And it's not something that Harry ever uses to injure someone. And so I guess an argument could be that he proves himself trustworthy of it, not necessarily inherently deserving, but he proves himself a mature owner of the cloak of this particular hallow. And he ends up doing the same with the other two. There's something about like, yeah, sometimes you just have to risk trusting someone and Harry proves himself trustworthy. Yeah. I mean, and he just also proves himself so trusting. One of the beautiful parts of this chapter to me is when Dumbledore is like, you must despise me. And Harry's like, no, I super don't despise you. There's just so much love in this kid. He, he's he been mad at Dumbledore. He's been frustrated at Dumbledore, but he's never despised Dumbledore. There's just like, there isn't much hate in this kid, right? There's resentment. He resents Draco and he resents Snape. But there's very little ill wishing in this in this child. And even though, you know, like we see him wish ill of Draco, who he then saves again and again and again. Yeah. I like at the end of this book, I just want to kiss him on the forehead and be like, sweet boy. Right. Yeah. Like he's just a very sweet boy. Yeah. So, Casper, I'm going to read to you from the very end of the chapter. And, yeah, your options are obviously finite, which is a lovely invitation. So we're going to close our eyes if we can and really try to imagine ourselves into this scene. The creature behind them jerked and moaned, and Harry and Dumbledore sat without talking for the longest time yet. The realization of what would happen next settled gradually over Harry in the long minutes, like softly falling snow. I've got to go back, haven't I? That is up to you. I've got a choice. Oh, yes, Dumbledore smiled at him. We are in King's Cross, you say? I think that if you decided not to go back, you'd be able to, let's say, board a train. And where would it take me? On, said Dumbledore simply. Silence again. Voldemort's got the Elder Wand. True, Voldemort has the Elder Wand. But you want me to go back? I think, said Dumbledore, that if you choose to return, there is a chance that you may be finished for good. I cannot promise it, but I know this, Harry, that you have less to fear from returning here than he does. Harry glanced at the raw-looking thing that trembled and choked in the shadow beneath the distant chair. Do not pity the dead, Harry. Pity the living, and above all, those who live without love. By returning, you may ensure that fewer souls are maimed, fewer families are torn apart. If that seems to you a worthy goal, then we say goodbye for the present. Harry nodded and sighed. Leaving this place would not be nearly as hard as walking into the forest had been, but it was warm and light and peaceful here, and he knew that he was heading back to pain and the fear of more loss. He stood up, and Dumbledore did the same, and they looked for a long moment into each other's faces. "'Tell me one last thing,' said Harry. "'Is this real, or has this been happening inside my head?' 
Dumbledore beamed at him. His voice sounded loud and strong in Harry's ears, even though the bright mist was descending again, obscuring his figure. Of course it is happening inside your head, Harry, but why on earth should that mean that it is not real? I was Harry, and it felt like, you know when you're dreaming, and then you're suddenly aware that you're dreaming, and you're kind of waking up, but you're still dreaming, but you're also awake now, and then you're kind of falling out of the dream, and now you're awake. Just that ending scene where there's a real close-up of him looking into Dumbledore's face, and then the face kind of starts to disappear, and it's just the, the sound, right, the loud voice. And I've always read that final phrase as a whisper, which is so wrong because the text is like, it's, it's nearly booming. Right. And that's what carries Harry back into his real body and into the kind of real place that he is. Yeah. It, it struck me really differently this time that it did have much more of a dream quality. So what did you like feel, smell? Like what were you touching? This mist, is it like on your face or is it just a visual thing? The thing that struck me about the space I was in was that it actually wasn't King's Cross unless I like looked specifically to see if it was, you know, like everything else was kind of just nothing. And so to kind of engage with the senses in this moment is very strange because unless I looked or tried to taste or tried to feel something, there wasn't anything there. So like Mm -hmm. when I was like, oh, is there mist? I was like, yes, there's mist and it's wet to the touch. (laughs) I was like, where are we? I was like, oh, the floor is still white, but I can see like kind of skylights or something. So I guess what I'm trying to point to is that this space felt like unformed or that it was forming as I was looking or smelling or tasting. Mm -hmm. All of my focus was on Dumbledore. Like I could see the lines on his forehead. I could see the little hairs in his nose, right? Like that was very, very formed, but everything else was kind of formless. What about you, Vanessa? What what did you see? I mean, the main thing that I saw, it was as Dumbledore looking at Harry's face Mm. You know, I met Harry the night he got that scar and now the scar is gone. And so it's just this like it's the first time I've seen this like child unmarred Hmm. by Voldemort. And, you know, I was also Harry for a moment and I felt in my chest the pain of this creature who's jerking and moaning. Hmm. And for a moment saw myself in it. I was like. That's how Petunia saw me. Hmm. And then the other moment that I was so strongly Harry is when Harry's like, oh, it's not as hard as walking in the forest, but it's nice here. It felt like how I feel every morning trying to get out of bed. (laughs) It's like, I'm excited about my day, but it's so toasty (laughs) in the bed. And why do I have to walk out into the cold? Like it's it's one of the dangerous things about comfort. Hmm. Is that it's like molasses. It's just like so hard to pull yourself physically out of comfort. And so I just felt that fog in this beautiful space, almost like the poppies in Wizard of Oz that are just like, no, lie down here. It's so comfortable here. And it's like, no, I really got to do it. (laughs) I got to go and like have this great moment with Narcissa. (laughs) Did it make you see this moment any differently, Casper? This like half mist, half realness? Yeah, I usually listen to Dumbledore's words, which I think in some ways are the most important words of the whole series, right? Just because it's happening in your head doesn't mean it's not real. 
Usually I hear them as words of wisdom, but this time I heard them as words of self-soothing, that if it is Harry saying them to himself, it's kind of a self-talk that's like, don't worry that this just happened. You're doing just fine. One step in front of the other. You know, you can do it. You can get out of bed. <laughs> like you can put away the cookies. I usually can't. But there's something intimate and vulnerable to it because it's, I felt like Harry was kind of negotiating his own experience of reality. And he's saying like, even if this experience doesn't make sense, you're doing okay. Don't don't worry about it. And that that felt very sweet to me, like a just a very good self-compassion practice, honestly. Like he's so compassionate to everyone else that now he's being compassionate to himself. And I, I really like that. Yeah. Thanks so much, Vanessa. What a What a great little place to do a sacred imagination. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This week's voicemail is from Christine. Hi, Vanessa, Casper, and Ariana. My name is Christine, and I am calling because I want to offer a blessing for Harry. I have been thinking about how it must have felt to learn that he had a piece of Voldemort in his head all this time. About two years ago, I began having seizures and found out I had a brain tumor. It turns out that the tumor developed in utero and had probably always been with me, causing small problems that I did not know about until it started causing bigger problems all of a sudden. Coming to terms with this thing that had always been in my brain but I only just learned about was a hard thing to do. It made me question my decisions and how I was viewing the world and wonder how this tumor might be affecting that. I scheduled surgery. I absolutely wanted this thing out of my head. 
but there was also the knowledge that this had literally been a part of me for all of my remembered life, and removing it was going to change things. Hopefully change them in a good way, but undeniably change them forever. I keep thinking about Harry, and how it must have felt to have this piece of Voldemort removed. I picture him walking through the forest on his way to meet Voldemort with his family around him, and I picture myself heading into the hospital that day with my mom and my best friend beside me, and lots of other people sending their love and support. But the fight didn't end the minute the tumor was removed, and for Harry, it doesn't end the minute Voldemort is dead. For me, the love and support of my friends and of many people within the Harry Potter sacred text community are what helped me to get through the hardest parts of that path, and they continue to support me now. And I picture that love and support being offered to Harry through Ron, Hermione, and so many other people. Harry got to his goal just like I did. He did defeat Voldemort, but it doesn't mean that his fight is over and that everything will be easy from here on out. He and his friends still have so much healing to do, just like we all do right now, but they have each other to do it with. I want to bless Harry for continuing on that unknown path and working toward that brighter future. And I want to bless the rest of us as we continue on our own paths, not knowing what the future holds or how we will get there, but leaning on each other along the way. Christine, thank you so much for sharing that story. I think that, you know, I'm receiving it in a self-centered way. You know, it's how I felt very much when I was deciding to be medicated for my mental health problems. It's, do I want to medicate this thing away from me? This is a part of who I am. And is my depression part of why I'm compassionate? Is my depression part of why I'm creative? Like, how am I supposed to know where one thing starts and another thing begins? It's so scary. And I I just think that that's incredibly relatable. And also, I very much relied on my community to help me figure out what was me and what my identity was in this sort of new phase of my life. And I'm so glad that your local Harry Potter group helped sustain you through that. That makes me very happy. Yeah. Thank you, Christine. We're going to continue honoring the people who've died from COVID, who were loved by members of our community. And so we lift up the names of Michael Westbrook, who was 54, a kind and supportive band director. Martha Grace Washington, who was 79, a pianist, mother and grandmother. Rich Gilliatt, who was 84, who was a partner of 60 years and is missed dearly. Deborah Meeks, who was 63, who loved her family and fashion. Sid Rosenblatt, who was 86 and was a silly old bear. And Karen Marie Crane, who was 55 and a sister, joker, hugger, laugher and friend. May their memories be a blessing. So, Casper, who would you like to bless this week? I want to bless Tom Riddle's soul, or at least part of it, this little baby thing that we see on the floor. And I want to see it as the goodness in Tom Riddle that maybe he somehow tried to expel rather than this inherently evil, hateful thing. And even if it's true, that's not how I want to live in the world. I don't want to think of people that way. And so I guess... It's an attempt to bless the goodness even 
of people who do horrible, horrible things, which can be much easier to do in the abstract or in fiction than in reality, but is something I think is worth practicing. So a blessing for Tom Riddle's soul. How about you, Vanessa? I want to bless Narcissa because that witch is waiting in the wings to come in and end this book so well for me. This chapter is so hard for me. And I think Narcissa is going to just like fly in and be such a hero and end this book the way it started, right? With a mom's love saving things. And so I want to bless Narcissa. Come get me. I want to get out of here. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and you can find listeners who are discussing the episodes in our Facebook common room. You, of course, can join one of our local groups and come join the community of people who are supporting us on Patreon. You can also leave us a review on iTunes. This is your last chance to write an iTunes review for Casper, guys. It's ending. And you can, of course, send us a voicemail. Next week, we're reading Chapter 36, The Flaw in the Plan, through the theme of hope with our very special guest, John Green. We are a Not Sorry production. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we're distributed by Acast. We want to thank Christine for this week's voicemail, Molly Baxter, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Megan Kelly, Stephanie Paulsell, and everyone who sent in the names of their loved ones. We will talk to you next week for the penultimate chapter of this series. Have a good week, all. And I will say, I went out with you and Sean very early in your relationship. Mm -hmm. We went to see Hunger Games together. (laughs) And you two were still in that, like, very smitten phase. That was so cute. (laughs) It's so funny because Sean would never go and see Hunger Games with me now. That was like his equivalent of sending an opera like Aria. (laughs) 